This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 146. Welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network, and I am your host, Riley Bowman, and today I have on the show with me a very, very, very special guest. His name is Mike Seeklander. Welcome, Mike. Hello. How are you doing today, man? I'm great. I'm, I'm especially great because we were just talking a moment ago, and I discovered that you are from Idaho like I am from Idaho, which is amazing. <laughs> Yeah, and, <laughs> and literally, as we found out, uh, not very far away at all at one point in time. Right, right. Like, you basically grew up a half hour from where I grew up, and it's not very often I, I bump and rub shoulders with, with folks that are from that neck of the woods. It's a fairly low, populous part of the world. <laughs> exactly, man. Yeah, it's uh, it's neat. I don't, matter of fact, I you know, every once in a while, I'll run into someone that is from Idaho or from Wyoming, of course, I spent my summers in Wyoming. But rare to to have someone that I that I meet spend time in the specific spot that we talked about, you know, the Rexburg Clark County area. So that is kind of neat, man. Yeah, yeah. And growing up, you know, I'm sure then you're you're probably pretty familiar with uh, salmon and Mackey and some of those areas, uh, Sawtooth Mountains. And <clears throat> I, I spent a lot of a lot of time up in those parts of the, of the world, and then. Uh, over on the east side in the Big Hole Mountains, up in the Tetons. That's just, that's that's my country, man. Yep. I love it, man. I miss it. I need to get back there, actually. I may get back there this fall, hopefully sometime. My dad is still kind of out in the country, so I'm going to be going to visit, and I'm going to try to make it through and drive the Salmon Idaho route. So uh, yeah, man, cool place. Nice. But uh, now my my usual co-host on the podcast is, he he's out, he's I think he's celebrating his uh, anniversary or something like that. Uh, good for him. Lucky him, I guess. No, but uh, he he's actually from Wyoming. And so you kind of have some some ties uh, with, with both of us. And on the podcast quite often, uh, Jacob, my co-host, and I uh, kind of <laughs> butt heads about which one is better, Idaho or Wyoming. And I, I think that apparently in your mind, you've maybe solved that question because you said you've really grown an affinity for Wyoming. Well, I do, I do, but I guess if we were to dig down for your co-host's sake, I um, my the current version of Idaho when I go visit is where my dad is. Of course, he left the area that I grew up in um, to move to a place called Buell, Idaho. Of course, and I am I'm less favorable to Buell. I just didn't grow up. I don't like the area as much, although it's still a cool place. But I tell you, if I had to pit, for example, Salmon, Idaho, or Tendoy, Idaho. With Buffalo, Wyoming, man, that would be a tough one. Uh, I love, I've spent more time as a, a young adult in Buffalo, Wyoming, but man, that would be a close one. So I don't know, man, I'm, I, maybe I'll be the middle ground guy with you and your co-host. <laughs> well, let me bring in uh, one more state here. Uh, I know that you've got some family in Montana, and I think specifically a cousin that uh, you had on your podcast Tell us just real quick about Mr. Orr. Well, yes, I do. I'm actually, uh, I'm related to Todd Orr. He's my cousin, first cousin and a good friend. And we have spent many, many hours together hiking and four-wheeling and driving around and stuff like that. But for your listeners, Todd Orr is also the uh, Facebook phenom that posted his grizzly bear 
injuries, uh, literally probably minutes, 15 to 20 minutes after being mauled by a grizzly bear. So he's from uh, Bozeman, Montana. He grew up in Ennis, Montana, which is where my aunt and uncle live. And I'm out there typically every year teaching in Missoula and sometimes, you know, bounce back into the Bozeman area to to hang out with him. But yeah, Todd Orr is the, he's kind of like the ultimate adventurer and um, is tough as nails. And uh, um, obviously is uh, his video on that particular day went viral with like whatever, 50 million views and people just couldn't believe this dude had been attacked by a grizzly bear and then posted on Facebook. Well, that's just kind of dude Todd is. And, and he didn't, interestingly enough, a lot of people thought it was about the fame and uh, uh, he was contacted by every major network known and just basically uh, ignored him and avoided him. Didn't do anything. Did a couple articles, but that's it. So he didn't care less about the fame. But, you know, as you know, uh, in that area of the country, sometimes we need to, to warn our fellow uh, adventurers and hunters that, hey, there, there's an issue here or there's a fire here or in his case, there's a bear. And that's why he posted. So his Facebook friends could see that, hey, there's a there's a sow grizzly and a couple cubs in this area. Don't run, you know, don't hike Bear Creek today. That's actually the creek he was hiking. So great guy though. Yeah. Uh, that was an f- amazing story. You know, I, I followed him a little bit there, read uh, read what he wrote about the experience. Of course, saw the video or video. I think he might have had a, another follow-up video or something too, if I recall. Um, but I, I couldn't believe his presence of mind, you know, as he just survived this attack, which he's very lucky, by the way. I'm sure you realize that. I mean, growing up in that neck of the woods, you understand what a grizzly can do to someone. I mean, there's there's black bears, and black bears are one thing, but then there's grizzlies. <laughs> and uh, I've encountered grizzlies. You've probably encountered grizzlies. And you encounter one, and you just you stay away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're they're mean, uh, big mean animals, and certainly when you run into a sow with cubs. Interestingly enough, he is um, he's had multiple charges. A couple that uh, that his bear spray had good effect. One in particular that he would tell me stories of before any of this happened. They got close enough where it gashed his his jeans. He was wearing jeans. He works for the Forest Service, and it put a big long gash in his jeans and just barely scratched his lower leg. And I think that was actually a black bear in that particular case. But I remember him telling me he went to his mother's house that night for dinner and just randomly, calmly asked her if she could sew his pants up. And she's like, yeah. And she's like, well, what happened to your pants? He's like, oh, I got, you know, I got chased up a tree by a bear and he caught me. And he's just that kind of a guy. It's just like, yeah, yeah, just chased by a bear. And, um, and this is, you know, this is a dude that spends like almost every single day in the woods. Um, he, you know, he's, he's a custom knife maker, but he's an avid handgun hunter. I mean, he's probably killed more trophy uh, elk with a handgun than anybody I'm familiar with, at least that's uh, that, that, that does that kind of stuff. But that's, that's what he does. Cousin Todd is, and he's a, a, a boat surfer, a fly fisher, a snowmobiler, a motorcycle. He just, he's like every 40, 40 to 50 year old guys, um, dream to hang out and to, to be a dude like this, you know, uh, not, he's not married, you know, uh, has had some relationships obviously, but just lives his life free and, and hard and enjoys it. Yeah. Well, folks, if you're interested, uh, go, go back and check out that episode that, uh, Mike had on his podcast. Anyway, I'm really looking forward to getting into it with you today, Mike. But first today's episode is brought to you by guardian nation. If you're looking for more training and better gear, join Guardian Nation today to be part of the fastest growing tribe of self-defense shooters nationwide 
And as a special benefit of being a Guardian Nation member, you will gain access to our monthly Guardian Nation live broadcast events, of which Mike Seeklander is going to be our special guest this month. It's going to come up here on August 15th at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. You're not going to want to miss it. And to get full access and also to access the archive of all past Guardian Nation Live guest events, as well as if you can't make the August 15th date, you'll be able to go into the archive and watch our interview together with Mike Seeklander. That's just one benefit. You're going to also gain access to our full, complete shooter skill library, as well as 10% off everything sold on our website at concealedcarry.com. And each quarter, you're going to receive a box of shooting gear. That's four times a year. We're going to ship you some awesome, custom-curated, sweet concealed carry gear that is at least worth the value of the membership alone, never mind all of the amazing benefits that come along with it. Plus, if you are a member for a full year on your anniversary, you'll receive a gift certificate for a free training course from concealedcarry.com. Join now and get your dues returned to you in gear every three months. Learn more and get started at GuardianNation.com. And today's episode is also brought to you by the Brave Response Holster and Live Fire Drill Cards. And so, let's get back into it. Mike, let me give you now the opportunity to introduce yourself just a little bit. I mean, we kind of got to know you a little bit in terms of where, you, where you're from, where you grew up a little bit. But uh, you've, you've lived quite a, a fascinating life, I think, and with a, a unique background, uh, done a lot of things. And of course, uh, you know, nowadays you are a world-renowned firearms instructor and, and teacher of, of the trade. And so tell us a little bit more about uh, how you've ended up to where you, where you are today. Well, man, I, I don't want to, I don't want to bore the listeners with too much of the background, but basically I have, um, I have a very, um, I would say diverse combined background. Um, from the military um, in the U.S. Marine Corps on to local law enforcement in Tennessee, where I was both a county deputy and a city police officer, and then into federal law enforcement, where I got hired by the air marshals as a trainer, and then later on became a credentialed air marshal and ran their firearms training program. Uh, and that uh, evolved into a short stint with the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, where I was a senior instructor in Charleston, South Carolina. And then on to another training entity in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And now during the entire time, I've, uh, I, w- I had been on, have been, still do, avidly compete on the competitive level uh, at the same time. It's like, a, I guess I'm like a maybe a jack of all trades or maybe I can't hold down a job. I'm not sure which. But also, you know, I've been a, a fighter and, and in the martial arts and uh, kind of how I'm kind of one of those guys, which is, I think, unique that has a very parallel competitive training track as well as a defensive kind of combative uh, training track. Um, I own a company called the American Warrior Society, as well as my training company, which is Shooting Dash Performance. And you can get on either of those websites or Google and read my full bio. But um, like I said, man, either I've had the opportunity to, to to move on to the next best thing and taking it, which is the way I'd like to say it, or I can't hold down a job. I'm not sure, man. Your listeners will have to decide. <laughs> well, whatever it is, uh, it's uh, it's a very worthy background uh, for you know doing what you're doing, and uh, you are also the 
the host of the American Warrior Show, which is a podcast that uh, that I listen to and quite enjoy. I don't know if I quite catch every episode, but I make an effort to to listen to a lot of them. And and I'll tell you a couple of my favorite episodes of yours, by the way, is uh, your interviews with Rob Latham. Uh, they're entertaining, but also I'll tell you the way you dived into um, some of his shooting skill knowledge. Uh, actually changed and transformed a, a, a lot of things in my brain. There was a lot of things that either I was doing and I didn't realize I was doing and it helped me understand them better or I was just like, whoa, whoa, what? I got to go back and listen to that again, you know? And I listened to to another section again and, and I'd be like, oh, okay. Like that that makes sense. That finally makes sense. You know, there was just things that that uh, really helped me, helped it uh, click in you know, my brain, and uh, I really enjoyed those those uh, episodes. Um, well, thanks, and also man. your interview with uh, Todd Orr. I mean, just mind blown, right? Yeah. Well, t- Rob was uh, Rob was great, and uh, as you know, he's very entertaining. Uh, and but you know, the thing about Rob Latham is, you know, in my opinion, he's probably the single best shooter ever to have lived on the planet. And 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 when I say that, I you know, I'm good friends with Dave Savignan and a bunch of other top shooters, as well as Eric Ravel, world champion, multiple time world champion. But Rob has done it throughout teens of years, as well as in every single discipline from a handgun sport related. And his his depth of knowledge is unlike anything else. And I. I would like to think that the the thing that allowed me to extract the information from Rob is the fact that I had been competing with and against him for so many years. So I had kind of the ability to extract, I don't know if I would call it advanced level stuff, but the micro details that, you know, someone else may have missed because I know him so well. We've been friends for a long, long time. And, uh, it's funny you say that because I li- I don't listen to my own podcast a lot, but I do just because I'm I as you know we should listen to our stuff and try to improve. And every time I've gone back and listened to his, I find myself rewinding and listening, rewinding and listening because I'm like I'm still learning every time I listen to the podcast. I did so the same thing with the Eric Rafael podcast. I interviewed Eric Rafael, multiple time world champion, a gifted shooter, and Dave Savigny, and I learn every time I listen to those podcasts. And it's weird. As the interviewer, I guess, as which you are right now, you I don't catch some of the things and the answers that my interviewees give me. So when I go back and actually listen to them as a podcast, I learn things. So it's kind of neat. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. I've done that myself many times, and uh, I suspect I might be going back and listening to some of this episode here today with you. <laughs> so uh, let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, well, kind of related you mentioned you have sort of a parallel track of, you know, you've, you've been very much a defensive minded shooter. I mean, you had to be in law enforcement and a lot of training you've done uh, and others that you've trained, you're training them to, to save their lives or save the lives of others. Uh, those are critical skills. We know that. And then you've also succeeded uh, very well in the competitive shooting circuit. And that you don't always see someone with your kind of background. Uh, you know, you, you'll see some folks that maybe started out in a law enforcement or military background and they transition over into competitive shooting and they, and then they kind of more, more or less focus on that, on that world. Uh, but you've kind of maintained this, these two side by side tracks for quite a long time. And that's fascinating to me because one thing that I sometimes hear from people is, 
well, your competitive shooting is going to, you know, screw up your defensive fighting skills. And so I, I kind of would like to pick your brain for a minute about about that concept. Uh, how do you bring those two things together? How do you still remain defensively minded and prepared and able to fight back in a life or death scenario? And then how do you succeed on the in the in the competitive world? Well, I, and that's a great question. I think the first um, the first thing that you and the listener need to understand is that I was not. Um, I, I have a, a fighter's mentality, but a lot of great competitors have that same fighter mentality. They're fighting in the match to win. You know, there's a there's a mentality there. But when we break down the actual skills and the people that will, for lack of a better word, poo-poo on competitive shooting, uh, I can tell you that um, uh, I'm not a I'm not a former Navy SEAL, a Ranger, Delta Force, none of that stuff. Okay, but I you know certainly been in the military, uh, been in combat, uh, have been in a lot of physical fights, although not gunfights necessarily. But I've I've also on my show interviewed elite level of uh, fighter warriors that have been in lots and lots of situations. And I've a lot of times that we've jumped into the correlation of whether or not competing or being competitive with a handgun or rifle on a shooting circuit is a bad habit. And across the board, they say no, as long as the individual understands that the competitive environment is a, to an extent, a testing ground for marksmanship and manipulation skills the competitive environment is not a training environment, meaning it's you don't go to a match to get trained on how to be a better fighter or defensive shooter. Although, if you use, for example, IDPA as a sport um, that you compete in, the things you're going to be doing, such as using cover, are directly applicable. But, you know, I always tell people that when you are, uh, if you want to take your skill to the next level, you need to get into competing. Even if you just do it with your your current defensive setup and change nothing else, as long as it's legal within the rules, it will make you a better shooter. And the reason for that is once you get that bug and you shoot your first match and you learn to love it, you're going to want to practice more and you're going to want to go to the range more and you're going to want to compete more. And as long as you maintain that discipline to stay defensive oriented, meaning you still take the time to work with your carry handgun from concealment, whatever that may be, you still take the time to think about the differences in the environments, meaning, you know, on the, in a competitive match, we may know we have three targets to shoot and we're going to fire two rounds on each. Well, in the defensive environment, that two round cycle may not have worked. You may fire three or four or five rounds. And then after you're done, you've got the rest of your job to do scanning and assessing and communicating with family members or whatever else. And I think as long as people make that distinction, there are no, there are no necessarily bad habits that they're going to develop, but they've got to have that distinction. They've got to realize that, Hey, I need to focus some time on these things, you know, but I'll tell you the first time I, I was ever really shot at a, a lot. A lot of people, I think say, for example, if you compete, then, you know, you're just going to stand out in the open. I could tell you for a fact, I don't think any of your listeners would stand out in the open. The, the second someone starts shooting at them or near them, it just doesn't happen. You you try to tend to crawl into the ground or make yourself as small as possible. Um, so, um, so you know, I, I think there's certainly a balance of the two. I didn't mean to be too long winded on the answer, but there's there's a way to use competitive environments for for combative skill sets. That's for sure. Yeah. 
Well, I'm glad you make that distinction. Uh, That's kind of what I see as well. I mean, I've been more of a defensive-minded shooter for a lot of years, and then just in recent, you know, year or two, started getting very much into the competitive uh, shooting world, and uh, which, which, yeah, I've become incredibly uh, engrossed in it to where, I mean, it it, like consumes (laughs) my life to a large extent now as far as, you know, a lot of times now what I'm thinking about is is how to obviously do better. And, you know, I'm shooting in a two gun match this weekend in Wyoming, I might add in Cheyenne. So, uh, the, the Magpul, uh, governor's match, uh, you, you've done a lot of, uh, more like, I think USPSA shooting, right. And maybe a little bit IDPA or. Well, I, 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 I started out in USPSA limited class and I shot that for uh, many years and that was really my primary sport. Then I jumped into, um, steel challenge, shot the Bianchi cup multiple times, and then also jumped into three gun for a while, which is, I'm not an avid three gunner, but I jumped into it. But about the same time frame, I started shooting IDPA in the last few years. I've shot probably a balance of about half USPSA, half IDPA. Awesome. So a lot of handgun skills there. And, and like you said, what, what competitive shooting teaches a person is how to become a better shooter. It doesn't teach you to be a better fighter. It teaches you to put, you know, sights or gun on target and hit that target better, more accurately and faster, which is a skill I think that translates over to to fighting. Uh, I, I've had people on this podcast though that have told me, you know, that's a that's a bad idea to try to, you know, incorporate you know, competitive shooting skills into the defensive world. And I don't think that's what we're trying to do. It's just an isolation of marksmanship and speed and accuracy. Um, But I think we do recognize that there are definitely some, we'll call them training scars, uh, that one might develop if they're not careful uh, from competitive shooting that we don't want to carry over into uh, the fighting world. And could you touch on that a little bit as far as what some of those scars might be, some of the things that you've witnessed, maybe even experienced yourself personally, and how we might avoid that? Yeah, well, first of all, in, in, um, in answer to those that would say, you know, no competing, that's going to develop bad habits or whatever. I tell you, if we, if, let's say we have, um, if we had two shooters right now, and I could pick a shooter uh, to you know, compete against. Let's say they were two equally skilled shooters, and one decided to take a defensive training track and maybe a few defensive courses, and that was his only mindset. And the other person, just a, a pure competitive shooter. They've you know maybe they're a doctor, lawyer, or an accountant. They've never been a fighter. They have no mindset. But then we take both of those people and say, all right, we're going to give you an end goal of of solving this problem. I would I would choose more often than not the competitive shooter to succeed under stress with, let's say we could give both of these shooters some additional time to practice and training and tell them what the goal was. They, they would su- succeed, I think, in an event more often than not because of the pressure they had exposed themselves to in competing in matches. And also, you got to remember, a competitor's main focus is to learn to draw the handgun as quickly as possible and put hits on target as accurately and fast as possible, as well as to manipulate the handgun. That means to do reloads, clear malfunctions, or move to different positions as quickly as possible. So if you take that same mindset and that same person, you say, okay, instead of wearing some sort of slicked out race gun and race gear, 
I'm going to force you to put the gun inside your waistband, covered up with a t-shirt or whatever else, they're still going to have that same mindset. And their attention and their work toward the goal is going to be to figure out how to draw that handgun faster and better and, um, and smoother. So, you know, they're, man, they're going to be successful, successful more times than not. And I, a lot of, I've seen a lot of people in simunitions exercise that were competitive shooters that, that were in a law enforcement setting that dominated those simunitions exercises because of their ability to, to, to manipulate the handgun incredibly fast, to hit incredibly fast, as well as to do it off balance and while they're moving, because that's all we do in competitions. We do all of those shooting things while we're moving, while we're off balance in weird positions, Mm -hmm. and we got to do it fast and accurately. Um, Now that said, the training scars. So uh, probably the single biggest training scar I see is uh, – in USPSA would obviously be full exposure when you're shooting, not paying any attention to any type of use of cover or protecting your body from incoming rounds. And the second one is a small one, but I think it com- could come out, and that is failure to follow through in the shooting. So at the end of the, the run, you know, boom, 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 three or four or five shots, the person immediately drops a magazine, cycles a slide, catches the round, holsters up. Well, in a true defensive situation, we're still in the fight for seconds or minutes after the shooting has ended. So when I'm working with students, and this is in competitive or defensive classes, I'm always very adamant that they follow through on the sights and on the trigger. What that means is when they finish firing the shots, I want them to visually stay on the sights and physically on the trigger in a prep position for maybe multiple seconds afterward until they've made the absolute decision. Okay, I'm now done shooting. I can take my finger off the trigger and off the sights. And I know to make the distinction, some of your listeners may say, well, it's unsafe to have your finger on the trigger. I'm talking about after they've already shot multiple times. So they've already been shooting. So it's not an unsafe thing to think about following through on the sights and trigger. And the defensive application there is, is the person truly down? Because as you and I both know, if you do your research, there are multiple situations where a bad guy or bad girl has fought from the ground and killed, you know, in one case, a state trooper, I believe, or in a situation. But the bottom line is the person is not stopped until they're truly stopped. Now, in a match environment, the application is, well, did the steel plate that you shot at fall down? And I've seen a lot of people unload the handgun only to realize the steel plate's still up. It's like the bad guy's still smiling at you, right? And you got to re-engage. So that's, uh, those are a couple training scars, I think, that, that stand out right away. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I hear that <clears throat> comment made about, you know, a competitive shooter will get so um, used to, you know, like say like double taps, uh, you know, they're shooting paper targets and they know they got to get two hits on target. And so they get, you know, those two, two rounds off and onto the next target. And, you know, maybe the concern is, is that, uh, if you had multiple assailants, you might just double tap, double tap, you know, and then without any regard for assessing, uh, the situation, uh, do you think there's any bearing in that at all or? Well, I, I, let's break that down farther because that's a great question. I, number one, I think that when we refer to two shots on target, some people may call that a, a double tap and that we could go down that road all day long too. But uh, so um, the, the, in, truly in IDPA in the last few years, I am seeing 
a lot of variance in the rounds fired on targets. I think course designers are doing a pretty good job of there. There are a couple of courses. Maybe, maybe we have to fire some single shots and there are some where we have to put three shots on each target. And I've actually been to some matches where we put up to four shots on a target. Um, you know, multiple shots, to the body and some shots to the head and what, whatever you believe, you know, a lot of people are like, you should put two shots, to the body, one shot to head on the head on every target. Well, that, that's not necessarily true. I don't believe, but it's good to have a varying number of rounds fired. But let's say you just competed in primarily USPSA. You would in fact shoot primarily two shots per target. Well, all that means is you're good at firing two shots and you need to spend some of your practice sessions firing two, three, four shots. I call that in my training, I call that a progression of four. So my students will draw and fire one round, scan and fall through. On the next repetition, they'll draw and fire two rounds, scan and fall through. On the next repetition, they'll draw and fire three rounds, scan and fall through. Maybe the next repetition, four rounds, scan and fall through, and then back to three, two, one. So it's one, two, three, four, three, two, one. And that way they're never in the habit of firing a certain number of rounds, i.e. two rounds, two rounds, two rounds, two rounds. So that you're right, there could be the possibility of developing that bad habit. I'm I'm also a big proponent of telling people when you're talking about defensive stuff, firing until the threat of the person falls from your sights, meaning they're no longer in your sights and you don't feel a need to fire anymore. We're not stopping the shooting until we're 100% sure the shots have had their effect, right? Because right. that's probably the best way to survive that situation. You didn't dictate that, hey, I want to get in a gunfight today. They started this, so we want to you know, continue to put rounds on target until they're no longer a viable threat. Typically, that means they're probably going to fall down or fall away or run away from your sight picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, when you're shooting in in a, in a real-life scenario, uh, you would obviously shoot, and, and there's a need for assessing while you're shooting. And that's, I think, how I would describe it, is that you know you have an active threat, And chances are, if you recognize that threat and you've made the decision, I've got to now draw my gun and I need to eliminate this threat. I need to stop this threat now. You're going to draw and you're going to begin firing as quickly as you, as you are able to. And the key there, I think is, is you're not, you're not firing around and evaluating each round individually. I'm sorry to say, I mean, some, some would probably disagree with me, but you're more likely firing and you're going to continue firing while you're assessing. So you're firing, the threat is beginning to fall. Maybe at that point you start slow, slow your rate of fire. Uh, you see, you know, that individual fall to the ground, weapon falls out of their hand, whatever you're going to, you're going to stop firing, but you're going to stay at the ready. You're going to be right there ready for follow-up shots if, if need be. Uh, would you, I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, you could, you really could liken it to a five shot recoil control drill or a build drill for those that may recognize that term. And basically we're, you know, you're, you're going to access the firearm as quickly as you possibly can. If you don't already have it in your hand, I mean, the rule of fighting, if you're going to get in the fight is get the gun in your hand. Um, and then when, when you're, when you're in the middle of the shooting sequence, it, you, you're literally pressing the trigger. And the way I try to describe it to the students is it's, you know, it's, and you can see this on a paper target. You don't need to go, you know, uh, to, to fly overseas to Iraq today and go shoot a bunch of ISIS guys and get into 18 handgun fights to experience this. Go out on a, on a cardboard target, set it up five yards away and press the trigger. And what you're going to watch is the front sight bounce up and down in the center of the chest. And in essence, basically your job in a fight, it's similar to a punching fight is to make that front sight bounce up and down 
keep that front sight centered on the, the chest or the, the available target area until there's a response. And then, you know, I don't, you know, I think we as trainers have learned along, we don't shoot necessarily to kill, or we don't use that term. If they die, they die. They made the decision to get into the fight with you to harm you and your family members. But basically we shoot until they stop doing what they're doing, whatever that means. They may say, ow, and turn away and crunch down because you hit them a couple of times. They may fall down. They may lean against the vehicle. They may run away from you. But once they stop doing what they're doing, then you stop pressing the trigger and the bouncing ball, i.e. the front sight, stops moving. And then from there, you go into your post-engagement things, whatever that is. My opinion is you should follow through on the sights and trigger to make sure your brain isn't lying to you. And they are, in fact, no longer able to hurt you. And then from there, you know, maybe look for additional threats. We know statistically, if there's one bad guy, there's probably a second one in most cases. You know, look around you. I want to find my family member. I want to make eye contact with my family members. I want to see where they are. Maybe I can hear them. Maybe I can't. Maybe the noise of the gunfire precluded that from happening. And then go from there, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm actually thinking, I'm reminded right now of this, uh, well, it's a, essentially a surveillance video, but it's inside a home. And I don't remember where the event exactly occurred. And I don't know if you're familiar with this one, but it was not too long ago, maybe five, six months ago. And it was a home invasion. And uh, there's two different angles, I believe, of the uh, of the uh, video cameras. And you see from one angle, which I think is kind of from the door area, and then you see another one that's from the side. And you see these three guys, three uh, you know, home intruders and two of them go one way. There's another one that's kind of hanging out in the, in the middle of the room. And then you see the homeowner from the back emerge and she begins firing at, at him, at this guy kind of hanging out in the middle. And she chases him basically towards and out the door. And there's a couple of things I find really interesting about this video. And, and you feel, you can feel free to stop me if you recognize this video, but the two other thugs run in front of her, her from the left to the right and I don't even know if she's totally aware of them or not because she stays completely focused on this one guy she's chasing out the door. And you know, she's firing, 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 and he's running to the door and she's firing and he's out the door. She follows right behind, uh, gets to the door, closes the door. And I don't even know if she's seen these two other guys that ran sideways. And Now, they've exited the home, but... I got to ask the question, you know, how do you know that? And, you know, so your after action drills, your scan, uh, your follow through, all that is really important. And so this is where I think uh, you and I would definitely agree as far as if you are a competitive shooter, but you're also concerned with being defensively prepared, you've got to make sure that you're spending time going through these, uh, we'll call them drills, as far as you're at the range, you're training, you're shooting. And you're performing those after action drills. Yeah, man. And I have two really, um, I think, key comments. And if, if the listeners tune in, they need to tune in right now because I think these are keys. Number one, uh, the original uh, after shooting follow through process that I learned to mimic before I was a big defensive trainer or whatever else, I actually learned by watching Jerry Barnhart, the burner, multiple time national champion. And he was a competitive shooter, only competitive shooter, never had any military or law enforcement experience. But at the end of his run, he was so focused on his target and, or excuse me, his front sight and his gun. He would do an after action scan 
that was amazing. Now, of course, he wouldn't check his six, which we would tell our defensive-oriented shooters, you need to look all around you, you need to move to cover, stuff like that. But he was ultimately focused on the front sight for just several seconds. And he, he, you know, so he would make a makeup shot on a piece of steel that didn't fall down or a target instantaneously because he was looking for it. He was looking for that, for lack of a better way to put it, threat to still be up. So I learned then and mimic that. And it, you know, you keep the gun up the entire time that there's a competitive advantage there, believe it or not, from a defensive standpoint, it's a huge advantage and you got to follow through. But I'll tell you that the second part to that equation is, and this is in my opinion, the single most important thing other than marksmanship and manipulation skills and motivation that you can get from competitive training is information processing. And I say that it's like uh, any one of your listeners that's ever been to a match. If you've never been to one, you got to go to one. But those that have gone to a match and post feedback or send, you know, your, you or I comments, because I'd like to hear back from people on how lost you felt in your first few stages, or maybe let's say you go to a Saturday club match. I bet your answer to me would be, Mike, I don't remember any of the stages and I don't even know where half the targets were. I just, I, the buzzer went off and I lost everything. Okay. That's your first match. Now your hundredth match your, or your first national championship, after you've been doing this a while, you're shooting targets. You're aware of the sights. You might be able to hear one of your competitors behind you mention a word or talk. I'm having awareness, and this sounds stupid, man, but it's true, of a of an eagle flying over kind of in front of my vision as I'm watching the sights and monitoring them on these targets as I'm fired. So I'm so hyper aware of everything that's going on. My information processing ability has just doubled exponentially. Now, fast forward this to uh, federal law enforcement and local training that I went through as a student, not that I did as an instructor. And I can remember being in numerous simunitions exercises where I was so hyper aware of the threat and the individuals around me and my position and use of cover that it was like everything was in slow motion. And I really only believe you can develop that in two areas. One, you have to have, you have to have the ability to go get in lots of gunfights, which most people can't unless you're in the military, in which case they're probably gunfighting with lasers and nods and things that aren't applicable to concealed carry folks. Or number two, you can go and compete in a competitive environment and you can you can increase your awareness and your information processing speeds. And it'll make a huge difference as long as you remember to practice those things that we spoke about that may be, you know, bad habits. Uh, and I think that's what people will get out of competing uh, that may save their life. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh so that's going to, I think, come back to us here in our discussion in just a moment, but I'm going to shift gears a touch and because we are kind of talking about sur- surviving, you know, getting through a deadly encounter and you wrote an article and also did a podcast and uh, about this as well recently uh, about the, the title of it was Why I Died. And uh, I read this, and it, it was a pretty compelling read. Uh, and I think it was published on, uh, actually on Rob Pincus's site on uh, Personal Defense Network. Um, and it, could you kind of walk us through this article, some of the key points you covered there, and, and also m- maybe touch on why you wrote this? Yeah, I did. So 
that article was written a long time ago. Um, I believe it, a, a version of it may have been published in the U.S. Union Academy's newsletter. Then later on, I wrote it for Rob at PDN, which I used to use to write for. Still do. I haven't written an article there for a while, but I've written two similar articles, but that one came about during a time frame where I, I was frustrated, right? And I've been frustrated for like 15 years, man. I got to let you know straight up because people, I think, spend more time on forums and Facebook and the internet. And if you if you get into these areas, it's, man, it would seem to me that there are a whole bunch of bad A's and, and tough girls that are really hyper-skilled and have awesome weapon skills and stuff like that. But when I go to my classes and go and be around real humans, groups and groups and groups of them, I don't find those skills there most times. So it it begs the question is like, what, what are people doing with their time? And I wanted to write an article during a period of frustration where we found that we had about, I don't know, probably 200 to 250 concealed carry graduates every month in our classes. And then when we followed up with a lot of these graduates and figured out which ones actually followed through with the process of getting their permit, it was like, 30% did. And then how many of those graduates out of the entire pool actually followed up and took one of our defensive or our our fighting, you know, handgun fighting classes that would really allow them to use a handgun in a fight and probably survive? It was like four or 5%. Uh, At the same time, you've got internet forums and chat rooms and Facebook pages with hundreds, if not thousands of people that all look like they're, you know, Tactical Timmies, tactical Rickies, they must be, like I said, they must be highly skilled, but they don't ever train. They don't ever practice. So I wrote this article in hopes that people would address that. And of course, as you know, as a podcaster and blogger or whatever else, you know, titles mean something. So I wanted to write an article like with people, when they read it, they'd be like, why I died? Mike Seeklander died or something like that. Like, I want to catch your attention. And then I, I want to, and I'll publicly admit this. I don't care who says, you know, maybe they'll poo-poo on it. I wanted to make people feel a little uncomfortable, right? Because if that motivated them to do something and get off their butt and work towards something, good. And, and I've had people give me my podcast a one-star review and talk, well, not all of us have the ability to go to a two-day class and high-volume round. Ah, bull, S-H-I-T. I'm not going to curse on your podcast, man. Bulloni. As a young police officer making $17,000 a year, I was shooting 2,000 rounds a month because I worked extra side jobs. And I had a cut-up Safariland holster that was an old leather holster that someone gave to me that I cut up and modified so I can compete. And I casted my own bullets and I found a way instead of sitting in front of the TV or computer to go work side jobs and work extra jobs and mow extra lawns to get the money to shoot and train. And I did the same thing in combatives and martial arts. I found a way to pay for it. I used to clean the dojo um, in, in the place that I trained at to, you know, to get some of the free training or get a discounted price. So there's a way. And that Why I Died article addressed fitness. It addressed distance and combatives. You know, things that most gun guys and gals don't think about. We think everything is a gun solution. Well, and when you're two feet from someone, they're grabbing you by the throat and punching you in the face. It's very difficult to draw your handgun. And that's why I wrote the article, for lack of a better way to put it. I love it. I I share and echo a lot of that same frustration. And honestly, that was 
probably a little bit of the inspiration behind us launching the Concealed Carry podcast was we hope to reach out to and touch more more lives of people uh, and inspire them, hopefully, to, to kind of take it to the next level, to take it beyond that basic CCW class. Because as you know, and as I know, and we've done the same thing here at uh, concealedcarry.com, we, in the last, I don't know, just probably two or three years as a company, we've we've had probably 6,000 people or more go through through CCW classes and other classes. Uh, but the vast majority of those are CCW classes because so many of them get that class, they get that permit, and they think they're done. Yeah, And so that frustration is real. It is real, man. And I think... I think our job as podcasters, instructors, industry individuals or leaders, call us whatever you will, is to motivate people to get out there and train and practice. And I'll tell you, I approached it, of course, my, I've done everything from those articles to, you know, live video feeds to free video feeds. But one thing I did, and this, this actually started after an event. I went to an event a couple of years ago, let's just label it like that. And I had a speaking engagement and I also spent some time shooting with this group and across the board, this group's shooting skill level was nowhere near where it needed to be to survive a fight for their life. Not even close. And it was shortly thereafter, I actually started to give away the, my free uh, competitive ebook. Back then, it was just a link like on Facebook where you had to download it from Dropbox. Now I've got a, a, a guy that kind of works with me. It's, it's more refined. But you know that you would think that I would either give away the, that I would give away my defensive book. I gave away my competition handgun training book in hopes that I could get people involved in competing and hook them. And if I could hook them, I knew they would train more and they would shoot more and they would still be good defensive shooters. They would, matter of fact, they would be much better shooters overall, like by far. And it was kind of like a secret way to hook people into, because, you know, man, interestingly enough, I wrote the competitive book and it sold X number of copies. And when I decided to write my defensive handgun training book, I thought, well, man, I'm going to, I'm going to sell 10 times as many because there are millions of concealed care holders and gun owners out there, right? I still, the competitive book outsells my defensive series, probably two to one to this day. Mm. Wow. That's interesting. It's because they're, it's their hobby because competitive shooters, they love that they're into reload and shooting and spend the time and ammo, their hobby. So they'll buy the training material. They'll spend the money on it. Defensive concealed carry folks, a lot of times, and not everybody, some of your listeners right now are hardcore. They're out there training and practicing maybe today. Yeah, God bless them. But man, across the board, we need to wake up. You know, we need to get out there and get people into this stuff. Yeah. Well, I certainly am getting a sense for uh, your passion and hearing uh, you describe that. And of course, uh, you know, the frustration of it. But I've been really enthused as we've done our podcast. And I I imagine you probably get some of the same uh, messages. But, you know, every week we get emails and messages from listeners that, are so positive, you know, where someone has said, you know, thank you for inspiring me. Thank you for, for doing the podcast and for, you know, teaching me, you know, kind of how to, how to take it to that next level. And and I hope we can see that continue. I hope that more and more people will take it seriously. And this is going to be another focus for me uh, personally. I mean, I've, I've always been kind of fairly in shape, you know, pretty, pretty decent in shape, but I'm far from being where I, where I truly need to be. And I like this part of your, uh, why I died article. Cause it, that's actually one of the first things you talked about was fitness. 
of how important it was that a person be physically in in good shape, you know, physically able to fight. Because as I'm sure you know, I'm well aware I've done some uh, some hand to hand courses where you get into some of these sparring matches, right? And yeah, if it's 30 seconds long, that's one thing. But we did a exercise once in a class I attended where we had to fight for a solid five minutes, like <laughs> truly, genuinely fight, right? And I, I'll tell you, I mean, I got through that okay, but you are winded and you are beat. And there are those there that you're looking at that, you know, at one point in the class, they were kind of putting on this era of, well, you know, I'm pretty big and bad and tough. And they get to about minute two and they are just huffing and puffing and can't get their arms up anymore, <laughs> you know? And so yeah. physical fitness is is really key. I'm curious, what what is your your trick and, and you know, I mean, how, not necessarily a trick, but how are, how are you trying to stay physically fit? Well, I tell you, man. First of all, I think I've I've finally figured out how to balance um, fitness with everything else. And so here's here's what I'm doing recently. And this is after years of evolution, whatever else. And it's no secret. Now, a couple things. I totally agree with you on on the fitness thing. And I if uh, on my podcast, of course, I interviewed Craig Douglas a couple times, and I've also interviewed Virgil Literal, who's my local guy that I train with, and we do gun grappling. And one of the things that I want people to consider exposing themselves to is full contact gun type grappling. Obviously it's with a safe gun. You need to listen to the podcast to learn more because if you want to experience true redlining where your engine is redlining to the point where it's a, it's horrific, it's a miserable experience. You've got to do that where you're really getting punched and you may really have a training knife come out and someone may simulate cutting you. And if they get the gun out and you hear the gunshots going off, that gun's pointed at your head and it's the, it's, it's a horrific experience and it's, it's such a physical taxing deal. You just got to experience to do it. And once you do that, you'll realize right away, I have got to address my fitness on a daily basis. So I have evolved to spending time, um, uh, going through cycles. So basically my cycle is there's a, a, I go through a strength cycle. For example, I also go through, um, typically a general fitness cycle. And I focus on functional things. So for example, instead of getting on a treadmill or running the stairs, unless I'm in a motel, I'm hitting Bob, my striking bag, right? Um, my cardio sessions, instead of getting, going out and going for a run or whatever else, I'm in a jujitsu class, you know, so I'm functionally finding things that, that allow me to learn and get better at my combatives and work my fitness at the same time. And there's a big difference between fighting fitness, you know, the ability to go uh, roll for five or six or 10 minutes, like I did just the other day with my coach, or to be able to run on a treadmill for 10 minutes, even if you run hard, there's a difference. Um, so, uh, and, and I, and I, I also do think, you know, you've got to do something every single day, excluding maybe the weekend day. So every single day you should be doing something in relation to your fitness and then let that evolve from there. Um, so typically my week is three days of MMA slash jujitsu or striking skills. Some of it may be at my house where I'm working two to three minute rounds really hard on a, on a bag for 40 or so minutes. And then two to three days a week are whatever cycle I'm going through to supplement that stuff. It may be six to eight weeks of a pure strength cycle. 
that were uh, my strength stuff is developed by a company called Atomic Ash Athlete. Great guys. Or I may be going through a generalized body weight fitness cycle, which I am right now, which we use in our Warrior One program. Um, so that's typically what I'm doing these days. Awesome. I, I appreciate you getting into some of the. You didn't get terribly specifically, but some of those specifics I think are really, really great. I mean, talking about kind of your day-to-day routine, uh, you know, work in the bag like you do, uh, that's really good stuff. Let's shift now a little bit to, I think, a related topic. You, we're, we're talking about fighting, talk about, you know, gun grappling, rolling around on the ground, getting dirty. What about weapon striking? This is a skill that, uh, to be honest, I don't think I've ever really talked about much on our podcast, uh, not extensively at least. And so I'm curious, you know, if you would take a moment and talk about weapon striking. Uh, Now, I know there are those out there that would say, why would you ever use your gun to strike a person? You know, well, I could, you know, knock it out of battery and then it's not going to be able to fire when I need it to, you know. Uh, maybe I do something to break the gun. <laughs> you know, there, I've heard a lot of different thoughts and opinions about this, but when you are up close and personal with someone, you are in a fight. Uh, your number one goal is to win that fight. And so how do you incorporate weapon striking into, we'll call it your tool bag of tools, uh, in, in winning a fight. So let's, let's, um, let's set some, the tone in terms of principle. Number one, I only advocate weapon strikes in two situations. Number one, where you can't shoot. And number two, where the gun won't shoot. Okay, so number one, you can't shoot. An example of can't shoot might be a situation where uh, bump in the middle of the night, you're searching your house, which may not be a good idea anyways. We should probably call the police. But, you know, if you've got teenagers, you're not always going to call the police every 28 times you think they may be sneaking through a window. And uh, you encounter a person at very, very close range, but you're not certain of who they are or what they are. This may be your 17-year-old idiot teenager, or it may be a viable threat in your home. You can't identify. You're in the dark hallway. Something happened. They came out, you know, they came from the side of you or whatever else. You're too close and probably unable to shoot because you haven't identified, but you got to do something, right? So either you're going to strike with a gun or you're going to strike with a hand and pull the gun to what I call a retracted position. So for your listeners, if you could imagine holding your handgun at chest or high level, just below maybe the sternum of, of the, you know, the notch in your neck in a two-handed grip, um, I may very well, before I let go of that handgun with one hand, I may take it and drive it straight into the person's that same notch in your throat, into the throat area, which probably won't kill them. It'll certainly have an effect and it may drive them back, which would give me time to activate the weapon mounted light and make a decision. Or I may step offline. So when I practice stuff like that, I practice that by striking, gaining my distance to the rear, and then pressing the trigger. Then I may practice striking the same thing. Basically taking the handgun in a two-handed grip and driving it straight into the, the bob. And I'll, I'll be happy to do a video if you guys want on this. I actually did a Facebook Live on it not long ago. And then I'll move left and right and practice it. The second version of the strike is basically where I practice doing that with two hands and then realize it's not working. And then I take the handgun, retract it to the extreme close quarter position, you know, something very similar to what Craig Douglas teaches, and then use the palm of my hand to basically strike up into the face or the eyes. And it's kind of like stiff arming. And you'd be surprised at how effectively you can keep your handgun from someone when you're doing that stiff arm. Okay. 
Now, another case where you may do a weapon strike is a situation where you can't shoot. So let's say you're in the same situation. You're in a very close range with someone. They jump out. They're, they're there for whatever reason. Maybe you're in an aisle in a Walmart parking lot or, or a Walmart store, right? And you're with your eight-year-old kid. And in this battle, in this fight, you realize, I want to shoot the person because they're a bad guy or bad girl, but I don't know where my eight-year-old is. In that particular case, I've got a gun in my hand. I may very well use it to strike with to get that person off me until I can clear, you know, once again, figure out where my loved one is and then make the shots. And then last but not least, like when my students are on the line, we're shooting at close range and they run out of ammo. You know, a lot of people will run out of ammo and the slide locks to the rear after that last magazine. They'll just kind of stand there and administratively put the gun away. I'm always telling my students to to look for the next magazine, like reach down, try to find the magazine. And the second you realize you don't have one, retract that handgun. And you just went from having a gun to shoot someone with to having a really good hammer and being prepared to strike with that hammer right into someone's face or their teeth or their throat because you're that close to them um, that the situation may warrant it. So um, now you, you ask, well, what happens if I break my gun and I put the muzzle out of battery. So my original weapon striking article, I think I wrote for PDN as well. I'm like, well, let me test this. So I took Bob to the range and I actually had a big two by four and I practiced striking and shooting, striking and shooting. And then I practiced striking as hard as I could on basically, it wasn't a two by four. It was actually more like a two by eight. And two things I found, not a single time did the gun ever go out of battery and not go back into battery. It fired every single time. And I tested an XDM, a Glock, and a Smith & Wesson M&P. That article's, I think it's on my side as well. The second thing I found was, you know, a lot of people think, well, if you strike someone uh, and you don't want to shoot them, well, you probably shouldn't be striking them with a hang on the first place, okay? But the point is, I tried to strike and shoot like at the same time, but every single time I did that, the gun did go slightly out of battery and the gun wouldn't go off until I retracted it and then fired the gun, of course, because then the slide is pushed back into battery by the spring. So that's why the, when I do my training drills, I strike, retract to whatever shooting position I choose to use, either a one-handed or a two-handed close position, and then I fire. And a lot of times I'll incorporate that with movement as, as well. Okay. Does that yeah, make sense? Absolutely it does. And... I'm glad to hear that you've actually tested that. Uh, I've also done a little bit. I haven't probably done, I didn't go quite as extensive with you. I probably only used my Glock. Uh, but uh, it, it's amazing, one, how resilient guns actually are. Um, and uh, by that, I mean, I mean, just just the uh, that sudden motion of striking an object with the muzzle of the gun and then retracting it back is almost enough to, you know, it, it, it goes back in the battery. It's just... It's pretty simple. I don't think it's it's rocket science, but I hear that so often about oh, you know, a gun's going to go out of battery and then you're going to be hosed, and it's like, well, chances are if you're already striking someone, uh, you might have to strike them again, and if it's gone out of battery, which is I think unlikely, well, keep striking them until right. you know, and until you get that distance you need, do your I add your media action drill, and then you know, get back into to to the to the fight, you know, shoot if you have to at that point. Yep. I agree, man. I yeah. totally agree. And that's what I found when I tested it. It surprised me. I mean, I thought I'd have more malfunctions. I didn't, I didn't have any, right. I didn't have a single malfunction. Every single gun I tried went back into battery multiple times. Yep. 
Now, you mentioned Craig Douglas uh, on your podcast. I love Craig. Uh, I have yet to take one of his classes, but I've followed him a little bit and, uh, you know, his his teachings, if you will, uh, his doctrine, and it's good stuff. I can't wait to get to one of his classes, and, and I've uh, been working on also getting him on our podcast as well. Um, now, let's... So... Weapon striking, fighting, competition shooting, we've talked about quite a bit here today. Uh, one thing I still kind of had less lift left on my list of topics I wanted to ask you about uh, was uh, you wrote an article too, and I've heard you talk about it other times, the failure point cycle. And I don't think this is necessarily a you know, uh, earth shattering, uh, stuff here. I mean, I've, I've heard, you know, there's others that talk about this, but I appreciate the detail you went into in writing this article, um, and describing exactly the, the different steps of a failure point cycle. And so if you could touch on that a little bit, as far as what that is, what that means and how we incorporate that in our training to, to push ourselves and make sure that we improve our skills. Sure. So, um, when we're talking about competitive or defensive shooting, I think I think that everybody would agree, I hope, that the balance of speed and accuracy, I think Rob Pink has actually coined that term, um, the, the balance is always there. It's, it's never necessarily, if we're talking about handgun shooting, either or, it's always a balance of both. And I oftentimes, I, I would constantly get the question, well, Mike, should I be trying to shoot more accurately or should I be trying to shoot faster in this drill? And my answer is yes, no, neither, both. Because it, there's no one or the other. It's always a combination. So what that means is let's say we're practicing on a drill. Uh, let's let's say it's uh, one of my very primary grip building exercises, my extend, prep, and press drill, right? And we're shooting at um, a, a humanoid shape. Let's say it's the IDPA target because it has a good representation of high center chest circle, you know, def, uh, combat, good effective combat hits. So our effective aiming area, what we what we determine as an acceptable hit is that circle in that high center chest, the zero area for those that shoot IDPA, right? So as we're working through our drill, our goal should be to extend the gun build the grip. Of course, there are a lot of details there that I won't get into right now. Fire a shot and hit the acceptable aiming area. And if I'm working with a group of students, typically I would have them work single shots on the first magazine, two shots on the second magazine, three shots on the third. Now, let's say you're on your third magazine and every time you extend the gun, you fire three shots. If you build the grip and you fire three shots and you hit the target three times in the acceptable aiming area, your goal on your next repetition should be to do that same thing, but do it faster. Well, how do you do it faster? Well, you extend the gun faster. You build your grip faster. You pull the trigger faster. You try to see the sights faster, whatever that is. All right. So let's say you do this, the next repetition and you get your hits. So I always say, did you get your hits? If they say yes, I ask them what their job is. They say to go faster. All right, great. Eventually, you're going to fail. You're going to be like, oh, boom, boom, boom. Oh, miss. The first shot was a total miss because I never got the sights into the aiming area. And the second two shots actually got, got I, I hit. All right. So then I stop. In that cycle, I assess, well, why didn't I hit the first shot? Well, because I never stopped the gun. I fired before the gun got to full extension or whatever. Whatever the mistake was. Okay. So now you've hit your failure point. At speed, you failed to hit your acceptable aiming area. So then I'm going to take a second to assess what did I do wrong? 
How did I do it wrong? How do I correct that? Now, I may mentally correct it for a moment. I may stop and do some mini reps, some micro reps, maybe trigger management, maybe seeing the sights flash in front of my face, whatever, to fix that problem. And then I begin the cycle again. So I may slow down by 2%, fire three shots. Hey, I got my three hits. If you get your three hits, what's your job? To go faster. Do it again. Does that make sense? So we're always going through a cycle of hitting our acceptable aiming area, yet trying to do it faster and find time. Maybe we find it in the draw. Maybe we find it in trigger management. Whatever. We, We find the time in the technical details behind the skill we're working on. Mm. And so obviously, you know, if you get your hits, your job is to go faster. But the other piece I think is so important uh, that sometimes is missed is if you did not get your hits, I think a tendency with some people, especially if they're practicing or training by themselves, and if they haven't uh, really developed a, a you know, regimented training, you know, uh, routine, you know, if they get to that point, that failure point, the tendency sometimes is to slow down. Okay. All right. I'll just go back to, you know, where I was before. Uh, but really what you should do is you, you, you recognize that failure point and then you need to analyze and figure out why did I not get my hits? That's exactly right. You know, and one of the things is speed is relative. You know, a lot of people say fast or slow. Well, what is fast or slow? Fast or slow to you may be different, you know, than than be different than fast or slow to someone else. So don't get wrapped around the, 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 the wheel on going slower or going faster necessarily. If you're failing in your failure point cycle and the failure point cycle applies to any drill, right? If you're failing, you need to focus visually kinesthetically, physically on what is causing that failure, not necessarily on in your mind just going, okay, I need to go slower. No, going slower is not the solution. We can make mistakes slow. We can make mistakes fast. The solution is analyzing and finding out what the mistake was. And in this case that I'm trying to describe, which is different maybe over audio or difficult, is the mistake is failing to pick up the front sight and make sure it centers in the center of what you're trying to hit before you break that first shot. That's the mistake. So we can fix that without having to think about going slower necessarily. You know what I'm saying? Because fast and slow is a relative term. Mm-hmm. Very good. Awesome. Well, um, this has been great, Mike, and I really appreciate you coming on with us. Uh is there anything that you'd like to add to anything we've covered up to this point? No, not really, man. I just, you know, if I could reach out to any audience, I would just tell them that um, that they need to um, they need to minimize distractions in their life and maximize the time they spent doing things that will make them better at what they do. And if they're listening to this podcast or they listen to my podcast then they want to be probably better fighters and better shooters and better at fitness and better, you know, uh, gentlemen warriors or family warriors. You can use whatever term you want. It doesn't matter, but focus more time on doing things in action, you know, versus intent. I wrote an article a long time ago about action versus intent. Intent doesn't mean anything 
uh, unless we act on it and we actually do something. And more importantly, you know, a lot of people tend to take me as a super intense guy, maybe so serious. He doesn't smile as much. But I'm all about having fun too. And if I can suck you and your listeners into coming to a match and having fun and getting into the hobby or sport of it, and it makes you a better defensive shooter or defender in the end, then I've done my job. So uh, have fun with it too, folks. You know, find ways to play games and, and, and enjoy yourselves and find reasons to, to try to take yourself to the next level and explore other areas. You know, for God's sake, if you don't, if you're not into combatives, get out there and find a good MMA dojo, buy a pair of MMA gloves and get punched in the face a couple of times. You know, gener- develop your own little mini fight club wherever you live. Um, it's just, you know, it's just the way to get better. You got to expose yourself to things you're uncomfortable with. Yeah. Great advice. So to kind of get close to wrapping it up here, I have some, uh, we'll call them rapid fire questions. Uh, so kind of looking for your, your, in, your initial sort of gut response on these. And this is sometimes fun. And I've done this somewhat with some other uh, guests we've had on the podcast. But one question I almost always ask is, so I'll start off with this one, nine millimeter or 45? <laughs> Neither. I'm going to pick a uh, 454 Casul. <laughs> well, that will definitely win a, a, a few fights. <laughs> <laughs> All right, 454 Casul. Not had someone pick that one yet. I like it. Uh, 1911 or Glock or Sig? Oh, man. I'm sponsored by Wilson Combat, man. I got to say 1911 on that one, dude. Specifically the new X9. There you go. There's my promo for my sponsor. <laughs> I, I had a feeling that would come out. And uh, I love the X9. I haven't got it hands on yet, but I mean, just from what I've seen of it, oh, my goodness. And I. Oh, you wait till you shoot it, dude. I'm telling you. I'm not. I know they pay me to say that. They don't really pay me. They pay me to be honest, but the, the X9 is a incredible little high cap gun. It, it is. <laughs> It's incredible. And I know you're listening. Oh, it's a Wilson Comet. It's so, I know it's expensive, but some of you own Porsches and Lamborghinis and cool cars that I don't own. And that's expensive. So if you want a really good gun, look at that gun. <laughs> uh, favorite competition handgun. Well, um, right now, obviously I'm shooting all Wilson's, but I tell you, I would also throw a bone out to my previous, uh, master gunsmith, Kevin Toothman, who uh, built built all of my previous competition guns. So I have a couple STI-framed guns that he built that were phenomenal. Um, I can't tell you that's they would be favored necessarily. They'd probably be pretty equal to my my Wilson Combat 1911 9mm, which I, I like to shoot the most. And the reason for it is they, they don't beat me up as much, and they're just so easy to shoot. I guess I'm just getting lazier in my older age. So probably one of those two guns. Nice. Favorite defensive or concealed carry handgun? Well, you know, I just, uh, and I, and I don't want to sound fake. I just got my actual production version of the X nine. If it, if it performs as well as the, um, the original test model I got, very likely it will be it. But I will tell you right now, I also have a Smith & Wesson shield that I carry on a regular basis that has... The reason I carry it is because it, I, uh, it's the one gun that the Crimson Trace makes the light laser guard pro for. I really like having a light and laser on a carry gun that's still small. Now, um, if they make one of those for one of the compact 1911s I shoot, it, I would be either or would be fine with me. Nice. Best position or carry method for concealed carry? Wow, that's controversial, man. I most people know I tend to go back to the appendix position 
Um, I don't think that's for everybody, but I carry an inside the waistband holster in the appendix position right about uh, two o'clock ish on my body. Uh, there's some cautions with appendix, so don't follow me because I said to make sure you do your research on that. Yeah, absolutely. Pizza or cheeseburger or something else? <laughs> cheeseburger every single time. And my mother makes the best cheeseburger ever because of the way she puts the bun on top of the burger in the pan, then covers the pan up for a little while. And it kind of gets, it kind of cooks it all together. Then she takes the whole thing and puts it on the bottom. That's a, like a little cheeseburger secret by far best ever. Nice. Sounds delish. And then that, that, that's all those questions, but I do have one last question. And every week on the Wednesday episodes of our podcast, we have a pick of the week. But first, before we continue on, today's episode is brought to you by the Brave Response Holster. If you're looking for the most versatile, most comfortable, most concealable holster on the market, you've got to check out the Brave Response Holster today. It is compatible with nearly every semi-automatic handgun on the market and many types of compact revolvers. And it doesn't matter what you wear for pants, or even if you wear any pants at all. If it's all waists from 20 to 54 inches, check it out at concealedcarry.com forward slash brave response. And today's episode is also brought to you by Live Fire Drill Cards. These revolutionary training aids from Burnett are the slickest drill cards we've ever seen which is why we partnered with the creator to bring them to you. These cards will walk you through dozens of fundamental shooting skills and drills that will help you shoot faster, better. These cards list all the requirements to shoot each drill, detailed parameters, and give you multiple fields to record multiple runs to the drill so you can track your progress. I can promise you, you will see a measurable improvement towards becoming a better shooter over time. Get started by checking out the Starter 3-pack on ConcealedCarry.com using the link in the show notes. Hope that you will check them out. So I'm curious, Mike, what's a, a product? Uh, it could be literally any gun-related or shooting product. Uh, it could be a book. You know, It could be your shoes. You have a favorite pair of shoes. What's your pick this week? Man, that's a really, really good question. What would my pick be? Get the ink and it has to be one pick. Oh, it could it could be one. Okay. Well, I'll throw a couple of things out of there. I'm gonna throw a weird pick out there and I'm gonna throw my friend Andrew Bronca a bone because I think a lot of people miss this in their training. His book, The Law of Self-Defense, I think he's on version three or four now, is one of the single best books you'll read. And it simplifies. It's like the simple people like me, or you may you're probably smarter than I am, but the simple people can read it and really learn about self-defense. So that's that's a must-read book if you don't have it. But the second fun pick that I would say is I just recently had one of my Warrior Society members send me a hand grinder for coffee beans and a hand press. I think it's made by, I don't have it in front of me, Presso or something like that. But basically it allows me to make a single hand ground cup of coffee in this Presso thing. And then, then I can add my cream to it and then put a lid on it and like just shake it back and forth. And it's like you can boil water and you can hand grind coffee and you can be at 9,000 feet in the Buffalo Bighorn Wyoming Mountains and make a cup of coffee that's awesome. <laughs> and I do know that you love your coffee. I do. I do, man. Eat, sleep, drink coffee. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> nice. I do. Uh, it's funny, you know, your, your pick, your first one there uh, is very appropriate because we just had Andrew on for, uh, we do our once a month, you know, Guardian Nation live uh, broadcasts. And he was our guest uh, just a few weeks ago, or was it last week? Pretty recent. So uh, 
very, very appropriate, very timely suggestion you had there. Yeah, and I, I didn't know that. I actually didn't hear that. So it's it's good that you had him on because I think everybody needs to be exposed to that side of the equation because we're all going to have to deal with it. And man, if, if he scares you into um, you know, awareness of an avoidance of the fight and that responsibility of avoiding and de-escalating, that's a good thing. If he scares you into that, but if nothing else, you're legally prepared, you know, to articulate what you need to articulate. Yeah. Yeah. And that articulation is key. So, uh, I'll just go ahead and go with my pick. Uh, and I don't know if you've read this book. My pick this week is a book. It's called Left of Bang by Patrick Van Horn and Jason A. Riley. And, uh, this is a fascinating book that, um, you know, it's a, it's basically, it's the culmination of some studies and research and putting together a program, uh, in the United States Marine Corps. And I know that, you know, you're a Marine, uh, Mike, and yes, I, I know I called you, you are a Marine because once a Marine, always a Marine, right? That's right. Yep. And so, uh, Basically, the idea is that the training that was put together was to look for those things in your environment that you can use to, um, you know, parse through all this this data in your surrounding world so that you can recognize ahead of time a coming threat. And it, you know, a lot of research was was done and has been done uh, overseas with the you know fighting in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, analyzing situations and events that have occurred and trying to find those those things those those little key indicators that you know had someone maybe they probably noticed them but probably didn't fully understand what they meant and so didn't you know maybe quite have the enough heads up to prevent something from occurring, uh, you know uh, whether it's a roadside bomb going off or uh, an ambush of some sort. And so really what this book is about is is understanding what those key indicators might be and what they mean so that you can be left of bang. And left of bang, for those that might not be uh, aware, literally means on a timeline. You got bang where either a bomb or an attack, an ambush, or something happened, something bad happened. You don't want to be right of bang because right of bang means you are reactive. You're just simply reacting to what's already happened you want to recognize those things ahead of time so you can stay left of bang and stop or prevent that event from occurring in the first place. Fascinating read. Like I've got to actually read it a second time, I think, for it to, uh, you know, really kind of sink in and start to make sense. Because there's, I remember there's some things I read in the beginning of the book that didn't quite, you know, like I, I kind of understood it. But then as I got to the end of the book, I'm like, oh, that's what they meant. You know, it's just one of those things you just got to kind of go back and and go back through it and and everything will start to sort of come together. So that's my pick this week. Uh, I don't know. Have you read that book or heard of that book? No, we actually had a book review done on it on our site. So I have not read it yet, but I will now that I've heard the the title a second time. Yeah, check it out. I think you'll enjoy. Um, And then, you know, what you got coming up next in your life, Mike? Man, a lot of things, just uh, a few classes. I got one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast uh, in Sacramento. And then, of course, all of the national championships are in September. So really right now, my focus is to just get on the guns as much as possible and to get ready as much as possible for the nationals. Um, for your listener, may be, listeners may be specifically interested. I am jumping on Facebook Lives a lot more just to generate an awareness of some of the uh, techniques and the thoughts and concepts that I focus on. I'm really trying to get into the live audience because it's one way for me to get in front of 
a, a lot of people and then I'll, then have them able to ask questions, ask and answer questions. Because with all the, I put a lot of free videos out on Instagram or whatever else, but if I don't stay on the string and follow it, I, I don't have the opportunity to answer questions. And that's really what I'm trying to do. So they can follow me on uh, my business page of Shooting Performance, American Warrior Society. Um, but most of them I'm doing on my personal page. And you don't have to send me a friend request, just uh, like the page. And I think you'll be notified of the lives. They're free. They're really deep in content. You can find them on uh, YouTube uh, as well. So just that man. And, you know, um, just, uh, just trying to, to put out good content and, and find out what people want to learn more about and interact with, uh, the audience. Excellent. So folks, uh, go check out Mike on, uh, Facebook, follow him there. Uh, check out, uh, your website is shooting performance.com. Did I get that right? Correct. Yeah. Shooting-performance.com is the training website. And then of course my society website is the American warrior society.com, which they can jump on actually for a 30 day free trial. We just started that recently so people can really get inside and, and check out programs like the warrior one program, which is a fitness firearms program and, and all the other stuff inside the site. Nice. And then also check out the podcast, American warrior society podcast. Uh, I think you just did your, what about hundredth episode or close to it? You got to be getting yeah. close. Yeah. Um, uh, I think maybe it was 91 the other day. I'm not pretty close. I'm very close to a hundred though. Yeah. 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 Here it is. 91. Very good, man. So great show. A lot of uh, fascinating guests that you've had on uh, there. I mean, recently you had Tim Kennedy, Gabe Suarez, um, Craig Douglas, not too long ago e- either. So go check it out. Great podcast. Thanks, man. So with that, uh, thanks. Uh, no, seriously, thank you to you, Mike. Appreciate your time today being on our podcast. Uh, it's it's really been a pleasure. Thanks, man. Have a great day. And, and your podcast is awesome as well. It's been uh, an honor to be on it. Thanks so much, man. All right, take care. We'll catch you uh, hopefully in the road down the road soon. Stay safe. And so with that, thank you everyone for joining us for this episode of the Concealed Carry Podcast. I am your host, Riley Bowman, signing off today. And just a reminder to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care, everybody. A reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.